chapter 3. <clears throat> See, we're beginning in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, we would not be like those of whom you spoke to Isaiah, but that indeed uh, we would be hearing, seeing, but also perceiving. That we would understand that which your word has to say to us this morning. And that in understanding it, we would deepen in our belief. That we would grow in our understanding and our trust, not only in Christ, but in those ancient words, these words of Scripture. And we ask this in the name of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's a... I don't, I don't understand sometimes. American Christian culture. One of the reasons, uh, one of the things that kind of pops up that I don't quite get is, uh, for instance, I remember when uh, Harry Potter came out. I remember sitting in a church in Atlanta. We were on our way back from uh, Synod, which is the ARP version of General Assembly, and the, the pastor of this church was railing on. His, his sermon from Acts was actually a sermon against that movie. And it just is sort of like, what's the deal, man? I ever hear of C.S. Lewis? <laughs> anyway, up in arms about that, and then a movie that comes out just a couple weeks ago based on a book that has, in a sense, taken much of evangelicalism by storm, and maybe you've heard of it. Um, maybe you've read it. Maybe you've gone to see the movie. I don't know. Heaven is for real. And the Christian community basically accepts this. Which to me, in my, from my weird, perhaps, point of view, is far more dangerous than Harry Potter could ever imagine being. There's something about us as people. We're consumed by what we don't know. And we, we want to have answers to particular things. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. What's bad is where we sometimes go to get those answers. Some people will go to a movie or a book thinking that somehow that will contain the answers that they've been looking for, that somehow that will do something that Scripture hasn't done to sustain their hope in something. Some people are different. They go to mediums. 
They visit, uh, you know, the, the various spiritualists who will take a palm reading or uh, try and have a seance, something like that, because there's something they want to know about the future, about the afterlife, about a loved one, and they, they cannot rest upon the truth of Scripture. And so they go to these means. There are Christians who do astrology. They're fearful of the future. They want to know what it's going to hold for them, so to speak. And so, you know, I remember when I was a teenager listening to 104.1 WBCN down in Boston, up in Boston. Daryl Martini, the cosmic muffin, was on every morning giving, giving people talking about how, you know, Venus is in retrograde, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and some people really like that. We have this bent within us to want to understand, to know the unknowable, and it can lead us into dangerous places. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus was sent to speak the truth so that we can have life. Very different from where, what many are looking. Let's start with where John starts. As one from above, Jesus speaks with authority. We have a little question that emerges here. I go with the text that we have in the ESV, which understands this not as a continuation of the words of John the Baptist. There are some who think they are the continuation of the words of John the Baptist, and that's because you know, there are no quotation marks in the Greek. And so it's up to those who are translating it and studying it to kind of understand, okay, is this John the Baptist continuing to speak, or is this John the Apostle who is making comment on the words of John the Baptist? Among those who think it is John the Baptist who is speaking, or sorry, baptizer. I fell into that trap. Okay. R.C. Sproul, Augustine. They think that this is a continuation of what John the Baptizer is saying, but I will part with, uh, with them in this particular regard. We see that, and again, this is sort of repetitive of what we've seen in places in the first three chapters, particularly in the first chapter. John is continuing to go over some, uh, some familiar territory for us, some familiar ideas for us, and really what he's trying to do is sink this in deep. The repetition is important for our gaining understanding to, to see the fullness of the implications of what he talked about in chapter 1. The implications of what it means that the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's trying to show us yet another way in which this is an important thing for us to understand and to believe. John here is, I believe, trying to explain part of what it means when John the baptizer says, he must increase and I must decrease. He gets back to this idea. And we're going to see this because there's going to be a contrast that emerges. But let's start with this idea that, he, that John starts off with. Jesus, as the Word of God who became flesh, is from above. He's speaking about His origin. The fact that Jesus is a heavenly being, and more than that, He's not an angel. He is God Himself. 
And so it's about his origin and it's about his nature when he says he is from above. And it's precisely because of this identity, this origination of Jesus, that he has absolute authority. Because he continues to say he is above all. And that's not about space. That's not about, you know, geographic location. You know, he's north of people or he's higher up on the, you know, physically than other people. It has to do with status. Jesus is above all. And if we go back to John 1, it's because he created all. There's nothing apart from him that has been created. It's all been created through him. And so he is above it all. He is Lord of it all, is the idea that is found right here. And he's contrasted with John the baptizer. Because it says, the one who is out of the earth speaks out of the earth. You see, John the baptizer's origin is, is here not encompassed by the word cosmos, but by the word the word gay, which refers to earth in, in Greek. And it sort of conveys that idea, not of his sinfulness, but more of his finitude. More of the limits that John experienced. And so John can speak truthfully about some things, but not about everything, because John is a finite being, just like you and me. He is from the earth, and so there are things that he will never know unless they are revealed to him. Things that Jesus knows already. Who needs, he needs no one to reveal these things to him because he was there. This points us in a part to the problem that we have, not just with prophets in the Old Testament, so to speak, John the baptizer, but a problem really with philosophy, a problem that we experience with, with science. They can be very helpful disciplines, particularly science, as we, as we study the uh, general revelation, as we study the created order. There's many things that we can learn uh, from scientists about these things. But there's a limit to how far they can go to what they can grasp, to what they can understand, and it's not just the limits of technology. When I was uh, reading uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on, on this particular, actually, actually it was on chapter 4, but he refers back to this for some strange reason. He talked about how when he was in university that uh, the atom was the smallest thing they knew about. Okay? And he mentions, now that I'm an older man, there's a world beyond our imagination that's smaller than the atom. And that was 1967, I think it was. How much more do we know now? But it's not just about the, the scope of our knowledge because of technology, which increases, but there's just certain things we can't figure out. Philosophers differ all the time. If you sat Plato and Aristotle down here, if we were able to have a showdown, two of the great philosophers, they would disagree on so many things. We cannot really go to philosophy for the deep answers. And that's just two guys. We could, we could, we could fill this with philosophers. Berkeley, Bertrand, Heidegger, 
all these kinds of guys. And you know what? You could, it actually would be entertaining. They could do it rent as opposed to the Super Bowl. You know, like they have the, the dogs playing all the time. It could be like the philosopher's debate uh, during the Super Bowl. Because none of these guys would agree on the, mul- the most important questions of life. Science is the same way. There are scientists who believe in intelligent design. There are scientists who are like Bill Nye, the science guy, who deny any kind of idea of creation in a higher being out there. And then there are scientists who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who created the heavens and the earth. They don't agree on that fundamental question. But here's the claim of John as he thinks about this important question. This is his claim. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that Jesus has dwelt with God, he was and is God, and has always been with God, he knows and has come down to tell us. Jesus knows the origin of the world, Jesus knows the destiny of humanity, Jesus knows the way of salvation, Jesus knows whether or not there's a heaven, Jesus knows whether or not there is a hell, Jesus knows knows. And Jesus speaks. Kevin DeYoung notes that there is no calamity like the silence of God. We cannot know the truth or know ourselves or know God's ways or savingly know himself unless God speaks to us. So there are a great many things in this world we could not know unless God speaks to us. And so there, there are, I think, two things that we need to take away from this, this quick little bit in verse 31. And the first is that Jesus is our most reliable guide on matters to which he speaks. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. If he speaks about it, he speaks truthfully about it. He is the one who knows all of the facts that pertain to it. Not some, or most, or many, or anything else on the continuum. He knows all the facts about it. So when he speaks on a matter, his words are gospel truth. They are completely reliable because of who he is. And the scriptures also testify, of course, that God does not lie. So he's not going to deceive us about what he knows. His words are truthful, they are reliable, and they are authoritative. And so we can rely upon what Jesus says, for instance, about heaven. We should not rely upon what a movie says about heaven. Whether it's the movie Heaven is for Real or that Robin Williams movie that came out a few years ago. That's not our sense of author- source of authority. That's fiction. Secondly, on matters to which he does not speak, I think we shouldn't speculate. We must hold to what is called the sufficiency of Scripture. That God has told us what we need to know about these things, and the things he hasn't told us, we don't need to know. That's a biblical concept. Deuteronomy 29.29. Very important scripture for us to have in mind. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Do you get what he's saying here? There are things God is not going to reveal. These are the secret things, and these things belong to our God. And so we are fools if we try to storm heaven and pull them out. It displays a lack of faith and trust on our part. But the things that have been revealed are given to us, and note the covenantal language, and our children. They're not just for us. They're also for our children. We are to communicate these things to our children so that our children have hope so that our children have a, have a knowledge of the way of salvation. And of course, part of what it says here in Deuteronomy 29 is also that these words are practical. They enable us to walk in God's ways. It is, God is not interested in giving us speculative knowledge. We all make fun of the scholastics way back when, or those of us who know about the scholastics do anyway. Their questions, oh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? God doesn't care whether we know that or not. In fact, he decided we didn't need to know that. It's not important for us because that does not help us to grow in godliness. That doesn't help us to walk in faith with Jesus Christ. But what he has revealed enables us to walk in faith in Jesus Christ. It matters. There's a practical use for it. Sometimes we have to work hard to figure that out. But there's a practical use for the knowledge that he gives us. So Jesus came from and returned to heaven, and as a result, he speaks with authority in everything to which he speaks. Secondly, that Jesus was sent in the Spirit to speak in submission. This is kind of a radical thought when we think about it. He's the Son of God. What are you talking about speaking in submission? Hang on. We'll get there. John says that Jesus testifies to what he has seen and heard. Jesus, who has come from heaven, is functioning in part as an eyewitness testimony to what he has seen and heard in heaven. I don't know how many of you have ever uh, been a witness at a trial, but that's what a witness is supposed to do. What I have seen, what I have heard. Not what I speculate about, not what I ponder, not any uh, theories I might have seen and heard. Even the experts that come in usually would have to deal with physical things like DNA and bullets and all that kind of stuff. Evidence, seen and heard. The soft sciences get a cheat spot. They get to speculate on some things. Jesus speaks to what he has seen, what he has heard, because he is an eyewitness. And this, he's sort of similar to but different from the prophets. And the prophets in the Old Testament, what happens is they were actually, in the power of the Spirit, brought up into the heavenly council. They received information from God. They received revelation from God about particular matters. And then they came back, so to speak, okay, and they communicated to God's people what God had showed them. And so they got a snippet of what was going on. 
Of course, in Isaiah, you get a really big snippet because you have 66 chapters of snippets. Okay, uh, chapter, A thing like Nahum is rather small, but very significant nonetheless. Okay, But you see that the Spirit of Christ, as uh, Peter says in uh, chapter 1 of his first letter, the Spirit of Christ was at work in these prophets, and the Spirit of Christ was revealing particular things to them, and they were, they were then proclaiming these things to other people. Jesus is like that in that he was also in the heavenly council, but he wasn't there for a moment. He was always there. And so he doesn't know just what Isaiah said. He doesn't know just what Malachi said. He doesn't know just what Elijah said. He knows what all of them said and what they never knew. He has the entire knowledge from the creation of the world on into eternity because he has dwelled in the heavenly places, unlike the prophets. So they had these glimpses, glimpses, but Jesus was always there, and he knows it all. Jesus does not have to speculate on matters like so many of us who are ignorant about particular things. And yet, here's the amazing thing. Jesus has come from heaven, and yet no one receives his testimony. Now, that's not an absolute We know that. We saw that in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Okay, so we recognize that when John is speaking in sort of these absolutist-sounding terms, he's not being absolute. He's pointing to the fact that there were many who rejected Jesus. That doesn't mean everybody rejected Jesus. But here is this profound truth that so many have heard his testimony and have rejected his testimony. Now the next sentence is a toughie. I want to read it. Where am I? Yeah, here we go. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. There's two ways we can take that sentence. And it's made unclear because of the profound and prevalent use of pronouns, not nouns. Personal nouns. Oh, sorry. Um, and my grammar mind just went goodbye. <laughs> okay. All the he's, as opposed to Jesus or John or John the baptizer. There's no specific nouns. They're all personal pronouns. And so it's vague. And so one way to understand this is that those who receive the testimony put their stamp of approval on the testimony. Or it can be Jesus received this testimony and placed his stamp of approval on it. This God is true. Those are two very different things. I mean, they, can, they can go together. But those are two very different things. And our, I think our tendency is to sort of go towards the first of those two options because it says, you know, no one receives this to- testimony. And whoever receives his testimony, we think, oh, must be about those few who received. That's possible. But I wonder. I pause. I think. Does my seal of authenticity matter to anybody? 
I think not. I think John here is speaking about Jesus. John chapter 12. Jesus himself will speak to this matter. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus is saying there in John 12 that he only says what the Father tells him to say. In other words, he's received a testimony. The information that Jesus conveys to us in his teaching was limited by the Father. He submitted to the Father in this regard, among other regards. I mean, he could have told us all kinds of things. But the Father said, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this, tell them this. And Jesus fully obeyed. And so when he speaks, he speaks for the Father to us, his adopted children. Very important for us to recognize this. R.C. Sproul notes it, that Jesus had come from heaven with a message that was not his own creation. He came with the words of God, meaning the Father. He was the divinely appointed apostle of the Father who came to this planet to declare the very words of God. Of God. And so Jesus testifies only to what the Father tells him to. In other words, he only tells us what we need to know. And again, this points us back to the sufficiency of Scripture. That doesn't mean our understanding of sufficiency, meaning it tells me everything I want to know. It means it tells me everything God wants me to know. And those are very different. And sometimes, just as Jesus submitted himself in what he communicated to us, we have to submit ourselves. Okay, there's things I want to know. You decided you didn't want me to know them. I have to be okay with that. We have to submit to that. We see also that Jesus was sent by God and given the Spirit without measure. And so he does these things in the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we saw this earlier in chapter 1 when John testified that he saw the Spirit like a dove descend upon Jesus and remain upon Jesus. And so the Spirit comes not just in part upon Jesus, but in this text, in whole upon Jesus. There's no limit to the, to the Holy Spirit when, where Jesus is concerned. He has the fullness. And I liked it because there, there were a couple of commentaries that use this word that you never hear at all. Is it? Uh, plenty potate. Full power. The fullness of the Spirit rested upon Jesus. And so when Jesus testifies, he not only testifies as one who was sent by God, but he testifies as one who was got the full measure of the Spirit. Sounds pretty exciting to me. I like that. Okay? And so, we see that this is a result of the Father's love for the Son. Because He puts all things into the hands of Jesus to honor His Son. He loves Him that much. 
And so the fullness of the Spirit is only one of the many things He has placed into the hands of His Son, that His Son might have glory, that His Son might have honor. But we see sort of this, this, uh, this process, so to speak, that takes place as we think through this uh, text of Scripture. We, we have to believe, again, that the, that the Son was sent by the Father, that the Son was given a testimony by the Father, that the Son was given all of the Spirit by the Father. And therefore, in light of those three things, He now testifies truthfully and sufficiently. See, all those things back up exactly this idea of the sufficiency and truthfulness of the Scriptures. And we have to understand that. Or we'll begin to deny the truthfulness and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And when we do that, we get into big trouble. Look at the denominations who've done that. Compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise until they're not even recognizable as Christian anymore because now they start accepting salvation by things besides Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Ephesians chapter 4. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so Jesus, as we've said before, doesn't keep all of the Spirit to Himself, but He bestows the Spirit. He baptizes His people with, with the Spirit. We see that taking place in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 1, we see why He did that. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, when the Spirit comes upon you in power, you're going to testify. And so for us, it's a little different. We've been saved by grace. We have been given the Spirit by Jesus Christ. And as a result, we now testify to the truth of Scripture and to the truth about Jesus Christ. Okay? This moves, this shouldn't move us beyond Jesus to our mission in this world to testify about Christ. It can't stop with Jesus because He gives His Spirit to His people for this very reason. And so in submission to the Father and in the power of the Spirit, Jesus speaks sufficiently. Third point, last point. Jesus speaks to offer life to the dead. Verse 36. We remember from chapter 1 that there were some who received his testimony. I quoted that passage for you earlier. But we have to reckon with what we saw when, we, when Marty read Isaiah 6 for us this morning. Isaiah gets this commission. He's, he's seen the holiness of God. We're going to study this in our community group later today. He's seen the holiness of God. He's broken down in terms of his, the, the weight of condemnation. He knows that he's undone. He knows he's condemned. And he's forgiven. And God says, whom shall I send? And he goes... Me. And then he gets the bad news. You're going to speak in such a way that people will not understand. They will not perceive. They'll hear you, but they're not going to get it. In other words, their hearts are going to be hardened. 
If we go back to Matthew 13, the section right before Marty read, and the interp- which is the interpretation of the parable of the sower, it talks about why Jesus spoke in parables, and the reason why was not as some people try to tell you. Jesus told stories so even the most simple could understand. That's what a lot of times you hear. Therefore, we should speak in stories. So my sermon should be a story every week. No. (laughs) Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the reason why Jesus speaks in parables. So that people will hear but not understand. They'll listen but not perceive. It's not good that Jesus spoke in parables. It's bad. But we see here that to those who believe, the one who believes, present tense, this idea of ongoing belief, it's not that the idea that you walk the aisle, that you raised your hand, but that you maintain, or, or that, that faith continues within you. That person has eternal life. Not will have eternal life, but has present possession for them. They don't just have a, a hope that it might turn out that they have eternal life. It's not like, they, oh, you know, I've just increased the odds in my favor a little bit. They have. That person has eternal life. And this life comes from the Son. We're, we live precisely because He died and then rose again from the dead for us. It is based on what Christ has done for us, not our record, because our record is not all that good. We have fellowship with God now. We will be with Christ after death. We will have fellowship with God after the resurrection as well. That's eternal life. Fellowship with God in all three ways culminating in our glorification when this resurrected body which will know no sin, which will know no fear, which will know no sickness, sorrow. We know this based on the testimony of Scripture. Let's not forget that. Not books written by other people. Not movies. Not fortune tellers mediums, astrologers, or anyone else. But Jesus also gives us hard news to hear for those who do not believe. Now the word that he uses there, it's translated obey. Those who do not obey. And the word can mean to refuse or to withhold belief It can also mean to refuse to obey or or to comply. And basically it gets to obstinacy. It gets to that uh, that idea that you refuse to believe and obey. (laughs) Like the child who consistently, or I should say, perpetually refuses to take out the garbage. Or whatever else his parents might ask him to do. Or the employee who... If his boss says to do it, just don't do it. <laughs> and so there's an obstinacy, there's a stubbornness, there's a stiff-neckedness uh, that is at work there that, that refuses to accept the testimony and refuses to obey the testimony, meaning act upon the testimony. In other words, they refuse to repent and believe. 
As I said, it's a persistent mindset. And the bad news is that they don't have life, but remain subject to God's wrath, as they previously were. It doesn't say they now come under the wrath of God, but they remain under the wrath of God. And we have to remember from places like Ephesians chapter 2 uh, that we too were by nature children of wrath. We were under the wrath of God prior to our conversion. And those who don't believe still are. The rest of my family still are. It's not an easy thing to think about. But it's about the greatness of sin, the gravity of disobedience. And we see that it's magnified when people hear the words of Jesus and turn away. Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? It was bad if you rejected the words of Moses. We remember the snakes, fiery serpents. We remember the ground opening up and swallowing. We remember, you know, Miriam struck with leprosy. We remember these. It was bad then. But what Hebrews is saying, it's worse when you refuse the one from heaven because he is above all. He's not just the servant. And so the greatness of Jesus increases the wrath of God for those who hear and refuse. But I want to say something about the flip side of that. Those who believe not only have life, but we have been delivered from the wrath of God. We need to really think about that. Because I think so often we don't think about that. We really don't ponder the greatness of our sin and the justness of God's wrath due to us on account of that sin. And therefore, how marvelous, how wonderful, how freeing it should be to know we're not under the wrath of God. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson preach on part of Romans 8 this week. I was taking a walk, and he was talking about 8.1, and he says, that word no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, grammatically is stuck as the first word in the sentence. Emphasis. No condemnation, people. It doesn't mean that you know, we're, we're less condemned. It <laughs> doesn't mean that there's still a little bit that might hang on there. It means there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Him by faith, it has all been removed. The sin you've already committed, the sin that you're committing right now, and the sin that you're going to commit the rest of your, your life on earth. No condemnation 
to the degree that we don't grasp that, we live in fear. To the degree that we do, we live in freedom. We live in joy. We live with hope. Let's grasp that. Let, let that. Let's let that sink deep into our hearts. Not just our heads, but get it down into our hearts. So when the accuser raises his voice against us, we know what to say. There is thou, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I, by faith, am one of those. And there is no condemnation that rests upon me. The wrath of God has been satisfied by His Son on my behalf. Good news. Good news. And Jesus came to tell us that. So we all search for truth on some level because we cannot function in this world without truth. Jesus was sent by the Father in part to tell us what we need to know about God, what we need to know about salvation. Jesus speaks truthfully and sufficiently on all the matters that He addresses. The truth He reveals belongs to us for our encouragement, for our edification, for the stirring up of our faith. And the truth He conceals is a call for us to trust Him with the unknown for our protection. And so, do you receive the testimony of the Son of God, or are you still looking for truth in all the wrong places? Let's pray. Father, we are sometimes a confused people, precisely because sin has affected our minds as well as our hearts. And sometimes we don't want to submit to what you have told us. Have mercy upon us. Work by your Spirit so that we will willingly receive and believe that which you say to us. That we will trust you with the things that you haven't told us. But most of all, that we're entrusting ourselves to you. Because you are faithful. Our faithful Creator. Our faithful Redeemer our faithful Father. Help us to believe these things because of Christ who has guaranteed them with His death and His resurrection. And we thank You that He now sits at Your right hand where He pours out His Spirit upon His people so that they might know the truth, that they might testify to the truth. So help us to be people of the truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.